The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Welcome to Scissoring Isn't a Thing. My name is Darren Karp, as always. <laughs> and I'm Liz Cully, and we have a very special guest. The most special. <laughs> Chantal Martin is here today. Yes. Incredible artist. I'm sweating, intimidated, about to read your bio, which includes so many things. Your resume is long and deep. I'm just going to call out a few things for the listeners here. Born in London, now living in Jersey City. You are, I believe, currently an adjunct professor at NYU Tisch. Casual. ITP. Casual. Casual. You've worked with a variety of household name brands like Tiffany's, Puma, which we will definitely discuss, 1800 Tequila. I mean, it's I, like I said, I'm sweating. It's going on and on and on. Sure, but really, Kendrick Lamar and oh, Art Basel. Come on, people. But really, truly have made such an impact in the art scene as of the last few years. And I can't imagine what you will do in the coming years ahead of us. But thank you very much, Chantel, for being on Scissoring Isn't a Thing today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, kind of seeing how this goes. Yeah. <laughs> me me so too. We. Me too, actually. Well, <laughs> well, listen, one of the first questions we usually ask our guests, and, and if it doesn't make you comfortable, you can say that and you can say why is how you identify. Usually we mean sexually, but you can choose to interpret that how you will. So how would you say that you identify uh, yourself? You know, I don't really put myself in any box. You know, uh, my partner's a woman there you go. You know, can join all the dots up. Yeah. <laughs> Much Fair. like your uh, drawings. Exactly. Yes. You just draw the line to that. And, um, your sexuality, would you describe it as fluid or your just partner now happens to be a woman or, you know, are you just like for the person? Like, how would you say that? Cause I was going to kind of ask you about maybe any coming out stories that you might've had. And I wasn't sure if you even have one. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's always a good question. And, you know, I've been dating women for many, many years now. You know, when I was younger, I, I had a few boyfriends, but you know, I, I, I had a kind of coming out story, but I lived in Japan, you know, and it's a bizarre place to kind of realize that about yourself. But growing up in London, especially in the area where I grew up, you know, it wasn't something you were allowed to be because, you know, I, I saw what happened to people who were openly gay and it wasn't pretty. And so, you know, for myself growing up, I kind of knew, but also didn't want to ever admit that to myself because I knew what the, you know, kind of repercussions would be. When I moved to Japan, you know, I'm pretty far away from everyone and every person that knew me or I, you know, I knew them. And so I had that freedom and flexibility to kind of discover, but, you know, Japan is also quite a homophobic country. And so it's not also like you just meet kind of gay people or lesbians or gay people, or whatever, anywhere, because, you know, it's very kind of underground there. So kind of, I, I came out there, not really a coming out story apart from just kind of, you know, watching the L word then. Um, <laughs> you know, you'd be surprised, Chantal. Literally, I would say almost Everyone. every person that we interview, including myself, you, the first yes. time you watch the L word, you're like, oh, wow, why am I so into this Showtime show? <laughs> exactly. And then you go on MySpace and you're like, wait, is there anyone else doing it? Yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's amazing. And then, so, we're, while you were sort of, I don't know if the right word is reckoning, kind of your interests and whoever, were you really focused on your artwork in this new, I mean, I would assume you would be in a totally different culture shock 
language. Did you speak Japanese before heading over to Japan? So I finished school in 2003 and I went to art school. I graduated, realized I'd never get a job doing art in England. So I decided to go to the furthest place that I could think of. And that was Japan. And, you know, for many reasons, you know, I, I'd been there on a vacation before and it was amazing because no one really asked me what I was, you know, they asked me where I was from and I would say London and that was it. So there was, you know, I think kind of on a racial line, there was something attractive to me to this, you know, almost a bit of breath, like fresh air when someone says, where are you from? And you say London and they say, okay. And they don't dig any deeper because that's enough information. So I think that was really incredible there at that time. But, you know, I think, you know, it, just from so many levels, it was an incredible place to kind of move before smartphones, move to before, you know, Instagram and Facebook and all of these things. Because, you know, kind of like I said before, if, if there's no one around you that's projecting onto you about who you should be or who you, you know, were, uh, you don't have to live up to those stereotypes. You know, it's a little bit trickier now because we have smartphones and we're always on la- online. So we don't really have that kind of separation anymore. Fascinating. That's And so, you know, I'm I'm an art fan in general, but I also plead ignorance. I'm maybe not knowing everything that there is to know about art because sometimes it's subjective and objective and I can't really tell the dis- difference. And, you know, you're a visual artist and you're known for these large scale, you know, black and white drawings what led you to that visual medium for yourself? I mean, because the interesting thing I find about your art is you're taking the, what I think is the patron, the consumer on the journey with you. And it's sort of like your thought process as it's going on. And a lot of times with art, at least art I see, you only see this finished product, but with yours, you kind of see this entire trail. And I'm just curious, like what was the inspiration for that type of artwork in the beginning? Yeah. So, you know, firstly, Darren, you said, you, you know, you started that by saying, I know nothing about art. And I think, <laughs> you know, that that's the problem sometimes because, you know, there's this infrastructure now, this system that is created that makes everyone feel dumb or makes everyone feel that they're outside yeah. of it or makes everyone feel like they don't understand it. And, you know, that's all BS. You know, that's just basically a system that's created to justify the amount of money or pretense that is in this like, you know, bizarre world. But, you know, so, so you do know because you go out, you have eyes and you know what you like and you know what you don't like. And, you know, your opinion is your opinion. And, and that does matter. But for me, you know, I, I didn't grow up around galleries or museums or artists. You know, I grew up, I went to school, I watched cartoons and that was it. You know, I didn't really have that access to anything beyond that. So what was accessible to me was picking up pens, picking up, you know, pencils and drawing. And for some reason, I was always drawn to just working very simply black and white. You know, I remember at school, the teacher would always complain that I didn't like mixing colors or using colors. And I think so at the core, there was always this attraction to just being very simple in the way that I created work, in the way that I dressed, in the way that I thought about the world. And I think that's just been a core thing that's always been within my personality that's carried through now. And, you know, you mentioned kind of people coming along on this journey. And for me, that's what art is. You know, art is a self-exploration where you're getting to understand yourself and the world outside of you by creating, by using your hands, by, you know, pulling everything in your head and your heart into your hands and putting that into the world. And so... That's a process where as I'm getting to understand myself, 
I think it's important to share that process and that practice with everyone else because that's the whole point of art to me. It's this idea of making and sharing, making and sharing, creating these connections, creating these experiences. And that's so much more valuable than hiding away in some room, creating a product and then pulling it on a wall in a frame. And there's such a huge distance and void. And, you know, just to extend on that, when you create work live or when you share the process or you expose the process, you now know how it's created and you now feel a part of that work. And you are in many ways a part of it if we've had that shared connection. And just to, sorry, Liz, I know you want to ask me, I just have a quick follow up. How much of each visual piece that you do is reflecting, is reflective of like, what's in your head at that exact moment? I mean, are you thinking about these things months, weeks, whatever beforehand, or is it really just kind of like a stream of conscious type of whatever you're feeling in that moment is going to be reflected in your art? You know, it's so layered. It's, it's so layered. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, I look back through old sketchbooks from five years, 10 years, 15 years ago, even 20 years now, you know, and you have that power of reflection when you keep making and you keep creating. And I think that's a gift of also being an artist is that you leave this trail, you know, kind of behind you. But what's amazing about that is I look back and things that I think are new now, I was writing about or drawing many, many years ago. And I'm like, oh, wait, I was thinking about that then. And so I do think and do believe that there is this core part of us that, especially as an artist, like their themes, the foundations and what we're kind of creatively built on. And those don't really go away. They kind of, you know, cycle through throughout your life. And so that's one layer. You know, another layer is I really love creating in real time. And, you know, so if there's a big wall or a piece of paper or there's an object that I'm drawing, for me, I don't want to think too much about it beforehand because if I'm thinking too much about it beforehand, then now I'm planning. And when you plan and when you think, you give space for insecurities, you give space for feeling not good enough, you, you leave space for wanting to maybe be someone else other than yourself. And so what happens is when you create live, and you create spontaneously and intuitively, it's as true and as honest as the product can ever be. And I truly believe that there is a drawing for every moment, in every time, in every space. But to get it out, we have to be honest with ourselves. We can't have that space where we're doubting ourselves, where we're hesitating, where we're thinking about what someone else would do. So that's why I really love to you know, create in the moment you know, what has been going on in my head is just this idea of, you know, like, okay, I, I, I'm drawing, I want to get a crisper line, or maybe I'm thinking about the pens I'm using, maybe I'm thinking about the texture or, or the surface I'm working on. And, you know, I'm thinking about the experience of when I drew on something that was similar, similar to that. So you have that like logistical layer where, you know, you are using your past experience and you are thinking back on things. But in that moment, it's very present. You've worked with, and I know I touched on this when we introduced you, with incredibly huge brands, right? Global, incredible brands. My work outside of scissoring isn't a thing as I work with large brands myself. And I work a lot with different artists of all different mediums, kind of making those brand collaborations come to life. 
as you know, it's not always easy. <laughs> there is some kind of like, you know, creative rounds and some different clients can, you know, put more boundaries um, for a variety of reasons on the artists that they collaborate with. When you speak about making this art in some ways, like uninhibited art in the moment, which is amazing. How was it working with brands like Tiffany or Puma or, I mean, you worked with Puma for a few collections, Nike, Max Mara, the New York City Ballet, which is incredible. How do you go into those relationships? Do you explain kind of what you explained to Darren and I, or, or how does that work? Yeah. So you definitely have to carve out a space for yourself. And the way that you carve out that space is by consistently saying no to things that aren't a good fit. Because as soon as someone comes to me, as soon as a brand or an institution comes to me and says, Chantal, you know, we'd love you to do this. You know, we'd love you to draw a rabbit with a house there and, and, and our logo there and, you know, write these words. If I say yes to that, I'm going to be totally off my path and not right. doing what I love, not doing what I enjoy, but also not doing something that is true to me. Like for another artist, they, must, they might love that and enjoy that. And that might be their thing, but it's not my thing. So carving out that path of saying no to all those things that aren't a good fit. And what happens is you end up building this momentum or building this track record where you are only accepting projects that understand the way that you work. And so I would say, you know, you know, I would have this little bit of a confrontation with some projects where they would say, you know, Chantel, can you show us what you're going to do? You know, we have this big wall and you're going to create this mural and this drawing can you show us beforehand what you're going to do? And I say, you know, no, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. And they say, right. you know, but, but we'd love to have a sketch, you know, so we can approve it. And I'd be like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so when I've had those situations where there's a little bit of that confrontation, brands and institutions are so used to approving things, but they yeah. don't understand why they really need to approve them. It just becomes this system that they're just a part of. And so with myself, I say, well, here's some examples of things I've done in the past. It won't be these, but it's, it's showing you what I do. And so for this project, you know, I'm going to inform myself about who it's for or where it's for or kind of why I'm doing it. And then I will let that dictate what the piece is. And, you know, I've been lucky enough that by saying yes and by finding people that, you know, I can either... Um, bring on to my side or, or help them to understand how I work. When we finally both are saying yes, then you get to create that record and that track record of this type of work. So now people are only going to come to me because they like my work. They've seen it before. They know what I do. And so I don't have to like fight or I don't have to really try and carve out that kind of lane anymore because it's quite clear what I do and what I'm not doing. Do you feel pressure as a visual artist, as opposed to maybe doing like portraiture or landscapes or sculpture, something like this, as a visual artist, especially now in 2020, living where we live in the world that we're living in, how much do you feel that you are responsible for having an opinion on what's going on in the world or maybe, you know, growing up with a family that maybe was different or traveling the world? Like how much of your art has to have an opinion to respond to what's happening today? Yeah. You know, I think there is a certain sense of responsibility that we should all understand that we should accept and we should claim the problems of this world are quite extent. The problems of this country are quite extreme. Uh, the baggage of history in this country is 
very large. And so in a way, we all have a little bit of a responsibility to pick up some of that baggage and kind of hold it in different ways and and for artists to hold it in creative ways. Not saying that you have to. For me, I have a unique experience and perspective. And the way that we learn and the way that we move forward is by hearing people's stories and understanding their perspectives. You know, I'm a black queer woman that, you know, is from a white family in London, you know, a working class family that's had a particular education, that's had a particular experience, you know, dealing with racism from probably before I was born, you know, dealing with racism growing up in a white working class racist homophobic country. And being the person that I am gives myself a certain voice and a certain perspective, which I think I have a responsibility to share. And, you know, I think the more stories like we hear of that, the less it becomes black and white, because obviously, like I said, this country has a lot of history and a lot of baggage, but it is so black and white. And it needs to be that right now because it has to deal with that and it has to get over that and it has to come to some terms with that. And when it has that, then it can start to let in the nuances of different perspectives. But still, I think in the meantime, those perspectives from everyone are are, are very important. You know, as artists, we are, people do look at us first to be like, well, what are you going to say? You know, what are you going to do? And, you know, I think if you have something to say, say it. And if you don't, don't, you know, no one should be forced in a way to, to kind of put their work out there if it's not kind of a theme or a cause that they they believe in or don't believe in. Very fascinating. It's interesting that you say it's so black and white, considering that's what your art is. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like until we get to the subtle nuances and I'm like, does that mean you're going to bring color into your art? Like, is yeah, right. Yeah, well, right I see behind you. Yeah. yeah, right. I was like, all right. So we're all. But that's evolving. the thing, you know, I just pointed to, uh, you know, a drawing that's behind me that has, you know, a lot of green in it. And, you know, that's the thing. There is a lot of color in my work, but people just don't see it because predominantly the black and white is much bolder and much stronger and perhaps in its number is more abundant. And so people ignore the rest. I I remember in 2018, I started that year with an exhibition which was all colorful work. And I was like, okay, this is it. People will see all of this color and they will understand that there's color in my work. And people completely ignored it. And that's the thing. It's like we, we fixate on kind of one thing and, and we ignore it. But also, I think we have to understand, even if it is black and white, there isn't an absence of color. You know, people bring the color through and from their imagination and from their stories. You have been, whether you know it or not, I feel like you are kind of this queer icon, especially in the art world for the millennial generation. You were on, I believe, Fast Company, 50 non-binary and women of 2020. You are on these lists, right? Like these queer icon lists. I know we started the conversation with you feeling very comfortable with not needing to identify. What does that feel like though? Because I feel like there is a little bit of pressure maybe that can come with being on those lists Yeah, or maybe not. You know, on on one level, you know, I think it uh, speaks a little bit to kind of your internal ego, which, you know, a lot of us have. But on another level, it made me feel so fortunate when I see that I've made it to these lists because, you know, there's a lot of people in the world and there's a lot of people doing really incredible things. And the fact that someone has 
noticed you and has, you know, kind of thought so highly of you to include you in this group of incredible people. So, you know, not only do I feel fortunate, I feel seen and I feel heard. And I feel like if you can't see it, you can't be it. But now someone can see me and they can see that I am this, you know, black biracial queer woman that has come from where I am. And, you know, through that journey, people can see me. And I think, you know, one of the most important things and one of the things that we strive for is that. Yeah, I think visibility is something that's a huge theme for us on this show. Just being able to see yourself or a bit of yourself in in somebody that you admire is really, really important for sure. But I, I would assume it would be I don't want to say intimidating, but it is those lists can be like daunting, right? You're like, whoa, I'm on this, you know. Well, you're representing yeah, you're whatever representing- they're labeling you <laughs> as, you know, now you have to be this black biracial queer woman in this world. And maybe you, you know, even though you were that, maybe you weren't ready to be, yeah. you know, a, a figure of that. You know, you know what I mean? It's it's funny because I've never, you know, I've never fitted in. You know, I've always been an outsider. And so when you're included in these things, you know, I think there is this sense of power of conclusion or like, or con- you know, feeling a part of it. But I don't feel pressure, like, because I don't have to do anything. You know, I'm on that list because I'm doing what I do. So just because you are being seen and seen with a group of incredible people, then why would you then start to feel like you have to do something else or be someone else or do something else? I'm actually curious about your childhood and how you grew up because, uh, you know, the theme that we're sort of getting from you is, you, you know, you never felt like you fit in an outsider, perhaps different, especially during the time that you were growing up, the place, the family you were with. And you sort of chose a career path that people will judge you based on your creativity, but not necessarily on who you are as a person, right? Like art itself doesn't have a sexuality or a race or a whatever, you know, it's, it's literally non-conforming to whatever. It is just this artist's interpretation of what's on the paper or whatever. So I'm just kind of curious, how much do you think that your upbringing really transformed you into becoming the artist that you are today? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because we say, you know, like art doesn't really have a gender or kind of a race, but it has been interesting when people don't know who I am or, and they have one interpretation of the work. And then now they see you and then now they have a different interpretation of the work, which has right. always been interesting. So, you know, I think if, if people saw the work and saw like an older white woman, they'll have, you know, they'll describe it in one way, but then they'll see me and they'll probably describe it in a quite different way. But, you know, it's a good question. And I don't know if I thought about it so much, but also at the same time, I think it informs it a hundred percent as much as I perhaps didn't like where I grew up or the situation I grew up in, you know, I do feel nostalgic to that place. I do feel like it has made me the person that I am. And I am very fortunate that I came from those places and experiences because it completely, I think as a whole informs who I am and what I do and how I create. And, you know, even like I was saying earlier, that, that idea of, wanting to create work that's accessible because I wasn't exposed to it or wanting to create work and expose the process because I feel like people should be able to see it or it should keep me honest. Or I think being able to, you know, work on these incredible massive projects with incredible people, but at the same time be super grounded and humble 
with it at the same time. I, I feel like where I'm from in my childhood has informed all of those things on, on many different levels. And just like a, a follow-up to that, because I know you, you sort of had touched on that maybe you weren't the happiest with where you grew up or the situation you were in. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? I mean, it was it really just because it was this extreme homophobic society and you felt like you had to be closeted or is there something else kind of going on, you know, being a different race than your parents, you know, how much of that really influenced it? Yeah. You know, so I, I think many of those things, you know, obviously there was exciting, fun things and parts of my childhood, but also at the same time, you know, I was the eldest of six kids to a single mom, you know, at times there were stepdads around, but they all had alcohol problems. You know, I'm from a, a family that, you know, no one ever graduates school. So there's no real expectations. No one keeps a job, you know, growing up in an area where, you know, everyone in your class gets pregnant as a teenager, you know, just that systematic societal system. But then also I think being young enough to perceive that it's wrong and being young enough to understand that it shouldn't be like that, or there has to be another way out. And so I think when you're young like that, you're trapped because that is your world. You don't understand that there is anything else because you've not seen anything else, but something something inside tells you that that isn't for you. So there's that internal conflict always of, of not fitting in, being an outsider, not seeing a way out because the internet and things like that didn't exist then. So feeling completely trapped, not having any real like lifetime goal expectations of, of jobs or careers and just kind of one day leading into another. And I, I think that is pretty tough. That's really tough. I think that unrest that you speak about, like knowing that this isn't for you, it almost like doesn't go away, right? Like it sticks in your bones because it's something that you've really grown up with, regardless of what that this isn't for me is, which I think varies from person to person, place to place. But it's definitely this kind of unrest that it like lives with you, right? Yeah. And like, as I was just going to say, as much as, you know, we kind of, you know, social media and these things kind of have a bad rap. When you have that feeling now, like you don't fit in, you can go online and you can see these windows into like, any alternative scenario and see someone that looks like you doing something incredible. And so I think for all of its kind of bad rap, it is that window into these other worlds now that I feel like are kind of lifesavers on on so many levels. Well, and I think now living in the pandemic, because you all three of us are able to talk in these like little screen, you know what I mean? We're all so connected, even though we're all so far apart. And it does give us a window now very personally into people's homes, which we never like we typically if we had you on the show, we would never get the opportunity to be talking to you while I don't know, you're sitting in your living room or your office or whatever it is, or in my dining room, you know, Darren's apartment, which is really interesting, right? Like, we're all feeling so disconnected and yet we're feeling, I feel personally like the most connected in an intimate way with people. Do you go home ever? Well, not now because none of us are going anywhere. But prior to COVID-19, did you travel back to London quite a bit? And does your family still live where you grew up? Yeah. So I think half of my family still live where they grew up, where we grew up. And, you know, I go back to London probably once or twice a year. And Maybe for an afternoon, I go see my family. Okay. And I, I don't think I can deal with any more than that. I don't know if it's just because of my past there or kind of, you know, memories or just just seeing 
and bumping into people that I went to school with who not no offense but you know just don't look like they're in the best shape or have yeah. like had five kids and have have a really tough life and you know so I think going back is hard but it's also important to go back because you know often what happens is that people leave and then they don't have any input or any impact on where they're from which I think is vital but you know I I also have probably like 12 or 14 nieces and nephews and so I love to go back to play a role in their lives because they're all white (laughs) and and the difference is between them and me is that they are white and I wasn't white so I was growing up in a white racist area which means these children will most likely grow up to be white and racist unless they're exposed like a lot of exposure kind of usually you know fixes that in some way they're exposed to their black queer arm from America that speaks Japanese, you know, already that gives them a window and a connection to the other. And so I'm I'm so thankful that I'm in their lives and that they have this window and this connection so that when someone says something bad about someone else, they can say, Hey, no, like don't, don't use that or don't say that. And, And they, they know why because they they've met someone and they're okay and they're their aunt and so I think it's it's so important to me that I'm able to go back for them yeah did you have anybody in your life growing up that was like what you want to be like an aunt for these you know for your nieces and nephews did you have anyone being like hey it's okay that you're black it's okay that you're queer did you have any sort of mentor uh maybe psychologically mentally emotionally growing up at all no not at all and I think in a way that's why I ended up drawing a lot more because you know drawing is that escape drawing can be that mentor drawing can be that teacher drawing can be that way that you cope when you don't have that kind of influence right and that's why I also feel like it's important to have that connection with them now Well, and I was going to say, just as a follow-up, because it's interesting about you is that obviously, you know, you're older now, you seem to carry yourself super well, very reassured. I mean, I obviously don't know what's going on in your mind or how you feel, but obviously you're a different person at 40 than you probably were at 15, I imagine, like most of us are. Is there a point where you look back on your artwork and you can see your emotional maturity kind of change? And what is that that you kind of notice that is that change? And is it just a matter of growing up and having more experiences or was there something for you specific? Shockingly for me, yes. You know, because in a way you always have this like little kind of naivety that you're you're the same person in a way. And and like I said, even looking back, I see these similar themes or words or patterns. But when I look back at my earlier work, it's so dark. You know, it's it's skulls and kind of really hopeless writing. Um, It's very almost morbid in a lot of instances. And, you know, I think when you're younger as well, you know, you're kind of exploring like what death means and and kind of what mortality means and, and where you are in the world. And so I've seen from this, you know, very young Chantel of being like playful and drawing and creating worlds to kind of teenage years to early 20s where it's just dark and helpless and lost to kind of late 20s into 30s where it's becoming much freer and lighter and more whimsical. And you could say in a way it's moving from this dark into this light space. Fascinating. You collaborated with Kendrick Lamar 
which I highly recommend anybody listening to go take a look at the video of you guys making that collaboration at Art Basel. How much does music play a part in drawing for you? I love music and, and music's pretty much how I started my career. You know, I, I left art school, I moved to Japan and I became a VJ, you know, a visual jockey. So you have mm-hmm. your DJ mixing and creating the music and you have your VJ mixing and creating the visuals. And so, you know, just the beginning of my career is rooted in collaboration with musicians and dancers and DJs. I really love that side of it when it's more of a collaboration. Uh, later on in life, I, I started to make music myself, but I imagine that music being an extension of drawing versus music within itself. But, you know, also I'm, I'm kind of very laid back with regards to music. And what I mean by that is that, you know, I don't know a lot of names or a lot of bands and I just kind of come across it through other people that tell me to listen to this or listen to that. Yeah. Or I listen to a lot of stuff from the 80s or 90s. You know, I, I love that nostalgia. But yeah, I think music, you know, it creates that internal energy, it creates that rhythm. And when we're talking about line, you know, as soon as you put music on, you can imagine that that line starts to dance on that paper. And so often if I want to kind of inject energy into the work, the best way to do that is just simply put music on. Yeah. Was that your process when you worked with the New York Ballet as well? Or what was that process yeah. like? So so working with the ballet I think, as I mentioned before, I love to know who it's for, what it's for, or why I'm creating the work. So a lot of my projects actually start with interviews. And so with the ballet, I interviewed over 20 dancers and asked them, you know, who are you? Where does the dance begin? And where do you end? And, you know, how did you get into dance? And why is it important for you? And what do you do when it all ends? And so I got to know the dancers pretty well. And I thought that was also important because you have this whole institution that's built around these people on the stage, but we don't really give them any individuality. You know, we kind of clump them together as, as, as dancers. And so I started with interviews. And then from those interviews, I created works using some of the phrases and words that I captured from, from those interviews. And then I went and watched rehearsals. I, I got to go to, to the theater Uh, every day for a few weeks and watch them rehearse, you know, all different types of shows. And I stood there with massive canvases and just tried to capture the energy and the choreography and the, and the vibe of what I saw happening on stage. And so that was really beautiful because, you know, I love those kind of projects where you go in quite rigid, you know, I go in and I'm used to drawing faces like this and I'm used to drawing faces like that. And now you're exposed to this ballet on stage and the faces don't work anymore. And these other lines and these other marks and these other movements start to appear in your canvas. And so it infects or affects the work. And so I love that when you're having these collaborations and you can see the change it's having on you through the marks that you make. You know, I watched one of your performances recently and you talked about maybe I'm saying this right, but it was more like embrace the yay, like you are you, right? And I thought that was like very clean cut and just so easy, but also comes with a lot of layers and very complicated. And it's really one of the hardest things I think to do as a person is to embrace who you are. And, and I find that has come with age, you know, certainly when, after I came out, when I was 19, I set, I definitely felt more like me than I had ever felt before. 
And, you know, I'm curious for you, after maybe you discovered this you are you part and how you grew up and who you are, what is the most surprising thing that you've really discovered about yourself uh, over the years of being an artist and just being a person in the world? You know, it's, it's interesting, this, this uh, journey to yay, you know, you are you. And, you know, I kind of like to say way yay, you know, way is who yeah. are you and, and yay is you are you. But I think the most surprising thing is, you know, you're on this journey, you get to this place where you're really happy with who you are. You can celebrate who you are. You feel like you've come so far. And then very quickly after that, it's all taken away and you feel like you know nothing and you've achieved nothing and that there's so much still to learn and there's so much more growing and you're at the beginning of it all. And so it, for me, it's surprising how quickly that cycle comes and goes where I feel like I have a grasp on things and I feel like I'm confident in that and, I, and I'm celebrating yay because I've made it there. And then, you know, the next minute it's taken away from you and you feel like you have this huge journey ahead of you again. And so I think there's something that is quite humbling in that space, but also quite exciting. You know, you're always getting to know yourself. You're always growing. You're always learning. You're always celebrating. You're always struggling in a way. But the great thing is that that, that cycle is moving and, and you're moving and, and you're learning and you're growing. And um, that's, that's really incredible. And now that you're living in New York, are you a New Yorker is what I want to know. And how do you feel about New York City as I am a New Yorker? So I hopefully you're going to say some good things here. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I did live in New York for many years and, um, you know, I do get in trouble by people in Jersey City now that if, if, <laughs> when, they, when they read an article about me and it says that I live in New York or Brooklyn, they, they get ups, They're like, no. They get upset. So, <laughs> yeah. so I have to make sure that I represent Jersey City and, and I'm extremely happy to live here. I, I really like being a part of this community. I think it's a bizarre journey, you know, from London to Tokyo to New York to Jersey City. <laughs> well, I think that's quite magical at the same time. Well, I'm a Jersey girl, so through and through. So go. thank you for <laughs> representing. Did you, see, did you yeah. see how quickly Darren just changed, though? At first, she's like, I'm a New Yorker, <laughs> through and through. I mean, me, I'm, I actually am from, me. I am I'm actually me, from Montclair, New Jersey. <laughs> like, let's keep it real. I think, you know... It's interesting, again, and I know I keep bringing up the pandemic, which we all probably want to forget that this is actually happening, but it has been such a, a universal effect on everyone, right? How are you creating and connecting art now that you can't do those live performances as you've done in the past? Like, how are you keeping motivated in this time or or do you not feel the effect of yeah. not having to go out because your art is quite personal you know I think it's definitely been a struggle you know like a lot of artists I had my whole year kind of cancelled under my feet you know I was meant to launch my book um, in March in London and then in the US and you know had a music solo museum museum show and, and some talks that were all cancelled and so initially I felt that because everything had gone I had to fill that space and so I started doing, you know, kind of weekly artist conversations called We Are We, because I wanted to put something out there affirmative. And lots of people were asking artists to, to talk. And I thought it's important for artists to talk to artists. And so I started this conversation called We Are We. And I, I did lots of drawing and I did lots of IG lives. And, and, you know, I was keeping myself busy. And I was really excited about that because I didn't have to think about what was going on. 
And then I think I caught myself where I was so busy that I realized that I wasn't using this time as a moment to be quiet, to step back, to reflect, to not be busy, to get off the treadmill. And so then I just started to say no to everything. And I think that's the best thing I've done in such a long time. You know, I, we, we just get so used to, to being busy and keeping busy and, and think that that's normal and that that's healthy. Naturally, I like to be in that mode and kind of I'm back in it now. But I think it's definitely pivoted towards being busy to create structures and systems that beyond this help me come out stronger and kind of more secure. Because if we rely on our exhibitions and, and talks in real life, then we won't have a career. Right. So I think just trying to use this time to pivot to challenge myself to come out stronger is kind of the new approach. Has there ever been, because you don't necessarily know what you're going to create before you put marker pen to paper, has there ever been a piece of art that you finished and you hated? So yes, earlier on, lots, all the time. But then, you know, there becomes this balance. You create work that you don't like, that you hate, because it wasn't you, because you were trying to be someone else, because you forced it, because you didn't stop when you was meant to stop. And so through practice, I've been drawing for a long time now. You know, I've been drawing for 30, 40 years. You get to learn that there is this feeling when you're creating work that tells you where to go and you, you kind of follow it and you, you listen to it. And then that feeling tells you to stop. And in the past, I would feel this sense that I should stop drawing, but I thought I was in control. So I would keep drawing and I would keep drawing and I would keep drawing. And then I would look at what I created and it didn't feel right. You know, it just didn't sit right. And once you do that enough, you get to start to train yourself so that when you do feel that, you start to build trust in that feeling. And so when it comes up, you're like, okay, I'm done. And you walk away. And then it feels right. And then you enjoy it. And you have this kind of nice relationship with it because you didn't force it. You didn't try and make it be something it wasn't meant to be. You weren't trying to be someone that you're not meant to be. You stopped when you felt that you were meant to stop. And so it's definitely this nice equilibrium and balance with yourself. So looking at the younger you, if you could tell yourself anything then that would have helped you, that really would have like maybe changed your life, what would it have been? That's a really good question. You know, I, I do think when I was younger, I stopped drawing for a long time because I thought I wasn't good enough and that, you know, everyone was, there's so many amazing people out there in the world, so why even begin? And so I would have loved to have got to myself much sooner to be like, hey, like you are you. No one else is you. No one else can do what you're going to do. And that's enough. And so I think I would have saved myself a lot of struggle and a lot of, you know, kind of hardship if, if I started to think about that a lot earlier. Well, Darren loves to ask that question, but I always kind of come back to the idea that without that struggle, without that heartache, the hardship and having the doubt and then going through the journey of then, as you said, so eloquently trusting yourself that you might not have gotten there. Do you know what I mean? It's like hindsight 2020, but completely, it's a tough thing to say. I mean, I would have told my younger self a million of things, but I think, you know, I come back to 
some of the themes that you've said while we've been speaking, which is like, if you don't have those experiences and if you don't kind of go on that journey, you don't know when to stop yourself. You don't know what trusting yourself actually feels like. Exactly. Yeah. It takes, it takes time and it takes practice. And I think everyone's in a rush these days that they don't go through that. Darren, how would you answer that question? Oh God, I would probably, that's a, no one's ever re-asked me that, you know, I'm the host of this podcast, not the guest. So I wasn't expecting that. Honestly, for me, it would have been stop stressing out about every little thing and enjoy the moment as you're going through it. Because I find at least for my life, everything is about like, okay, I've accomplished that. What's next. And that hasn't made me enjoy the process of actually doing what I am doing, which I do enjoy. So for me, it's about taking a step back and not always, you know, being on the treadmill every two seconds, you know, as a New Jersey, New Yorker, certainly a Northeastern gal. I mean, it's, it's a fast paced world and a fast paced industry and a fast paced business. And I'm just trying to keep my head above water. But when I look back on it, I realize that it was extremely about the journey and not about the destination. So I just would tell myself to like relax and smoke weed a lot sooner than I did. Very key. <laughs> Very important. I wish I smoked I, on a the lot other hand, younger. You know, what's really <laughs> funny is that I'm the opposite. I'm like, God, I smoked weed so young. And I'm also yeah. from San Francisco. So maybe a little bit City different girl, yeah. culturally than you guys in London and in on the Northeast, because we were all smoking weed back then. But now I'm like, you know, I really need... <laughs> things have changed. Now I'm just, you know, an old yeah. lady who lives in her house in West Hollywood and, you know, drinks red wine. That's about as wild as I get these days. It might take it. You know, it might come and have a comeback. You never know. You never know. I mean, I say, I, by the way, I'm like totally lying. Of course, I'm, you know. <laughs> That's not what I do at all. Honestly, I feel like we could talk to you for two hours, but it was so fascinating getting to talk to you and just your visual art and representing. And you're just a wonderful person. And I'm so happy that you're doing what you're doing and we get to see it. And you live very close to me. So hopefully we can <laughs> actually hang out. I can draw you some stick figures. You know, I'm sure you'd be very impressed. Uh, but we really appreciate you taking the time. You are a lovely individual and I'm really happy you landed on the East Coast. Thank uh, you. So maybe a social distance walk or something in the, in the future. Happy First to of do all, it. I would, also Liz, just, I would just like to say that I really kept my calm this whole <laughs> interview for being a real super fan. And I didn't even get to tell you and I'm going to tell you now. I called Puma Corporate, who <laughs> is my client. And actually, I won't say her government name, but the woman who lives literally on the other side of this wall has worked at Puma for a very long time. And I couldn't get your shoes white slides with blue drawings. And it was a whole situation. And I ended up calling Puma Corporate. And I do have a pair. Look at that. When you try, <laughs> you win. You know, there you go. That's Champion. right. You are I'm you, such Liz. A nerd. You are I'm you. such a nerd. But I was like, <laughs> oh my God, I have them. I have the shoes. But anyway, I feel like I really kept it calm. So I'm very proud well, of send, myself. Send me a picture now. Yes. Oh my God, I will. <laughs> Wait, Liz, put me on it. I want to say, I want to oh, see oh, these I, slides. I even, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, don't worry. I'm not going to like be a total weirdo, but I will send you the one, the one photo. But thank you. Again, Thank for being you so on the show. And, and wait for the social distance walk until I can fly to New Jersey City, please. Sorry, because... Liz, you're breaking up. Um, and by the way, I meant to ask you, Chantel, when is your book out? Can I buy it? Is it, it's available, it, it's right? It's out. It's called Lines. Okay, good. Chantel Martin yes. Lines. Yeah. Beautiful. Awesome. I can't wait to Wonderful. purchase it. Well, Thank, thank you, so you again much. for coming. And I'm actually was I was going to say thank you for not saying no to a podcast called Scissoring Isn't a Thing. 
Yeah, yeah which I can see. I was going to ask actually, how did that come about? The two uh, of us meeting, yeah, actually. Yeah, we, we met and we were talking. It actually came about because Liz and I were talking about like the horrible things that. Pe- so Liz identifies as bi, I identify as a lesbian, and she's married to a woman. And we were just talking about like all the horrible things people say to us, like, how do you have sex? And we're like, Jesus Christ, like, come on, people, it's 2020. And we started talking about like everyone's like, oh, scissoring. And I was like, scissoring isn't a thing. And then Liz was like, scissoring is a thing. And I was like, no, Liz, it's not. And we got this huge argument about it. We were like, <laughs> we should just call it this because it's controversial. And and Embassy Row let us keep it. So it was, it's eye-catching, you know, it's very eye-catching. <laughs> Trust me, Embassy, Embassy Row was like, oh, this is not brand friendly. And we're like, whatever. <laughs> Yeah, it's I think catchy. everyone probably has the same reaction when they read that email and they're like, wait, what? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's exactly. kind of what we wanted. But thank you so much for giving us the time because we, we're honored to talk to you. Cool, total pleasure. Thank you for listening to Scissoring Isn't a Thing. See you next Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs>